dislike the term religion when it was applied to Christianity, when it was applied to Christianity. If I invite someone to my church and they respond with, no thanks, I'm not really religious, I usually respond by, neither am I. One time I invited a guy to church and he told me, let's just say I have issues with organized religion. Not really understanding what he meant or what he was saying, I said, I know what you mean, I don't really like it either, so are you going to come this Sunday or not? I did not understand when he looked at me like I was crazy. It never occurred to me that being a free will Baptist man, I was involved in an organized religion. Uh, probably one of the reasons I don't like religion, the word religion when it's applied to Christianity, is the idea that it brings to my mind. In my mind, religion is a bunch of, of rules that you follow in order to be right with God. In my mind, religious people are legalistic, judgmental, holier than thou, and often hypocritical. I think my ideas of religious and, and religion come from the gospel. I mean, when you read the life of Jesus, you see that Judaism at this time was a, a very, well, religious religion. That there were rules upon rules that you had to follow. Many of which did not actually come from the scriptures. They were simply the traditions that had been passed down through the years. The most religious people of the day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as you read the gospels, you find that they were legalistic, judgmental, holier than thou, and hypocritical. And I don't think I'm the only person whose idea of religion is that it's a list of rules. Um, or that a religious person fits the description that I gave. And there are probably some in here this morning, and your idea is this, and you think, no, that's exactly what I think religion is, and I don't want any part of it. Well, I want you to know, honestly, neither do I. And that's not what I consider Christianity to be about. Christianity is not a long list of rules we have to follow in order to be right with God. Instead of Christianity is about the relationship we can have with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Christianity is not based upon the things that we do for God. It's based upon what Jesus has done for us. And by the same token, I don't believe being a follower of Christ makes a person legalistic, judgmental, holier than our hypocritical. In all honesty, I believe when you find a Christian who is legalistic, judgmental, holier than thou, what you find is someone who would be legalistic, judgmental, holier than thou, and hypocritical no matter what they were. That is their natural personality. It just so happens that they are also claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And overall, I also think the term religion and religious have gotten a bad rap to so, in, in a bit. The reason I think that is because the Bible doesn't paint the idea of being religious or religion in these negative terms. So what I want us to do today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that tells us what true religion is. What does it mean to, to belong to a religion? What does it mean to be religious? That's what we're going to find out today. Open your Bible to James chapter 1, verse 26. That's page 930 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Joe, is my lapel mic on? Okay. James 1 and 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Title of the message is The Test of True Religion. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and wonderful, and we need you.
Father, we need you to guide us and we need you to help us. We need you to take your word and apply it to our hearts. We need you to open our eyes so that we can understand it. We need you, God, to help us to lay aside our preconceived notions so that we can let your word be the standard by which we live. Father, we need you to change us and we need you to strengthen us and we need you to enlighten us. Father, I need you today to fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I can speak your words and your ways and not be a hindrance to what you once said or done. Father, we need you to, to help us to follow through with your word, to take it and obey it. We need you to show us where we're wrong. We need you to strengthen us where we're weak. We need you to convict us where we need it. We need you to encourage us where we're discouraged. We need you to revive us where we've grown lukewarm. God, we just, we need you in every way. We need you today. Let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts, work in our lives. Help us to be your people that would be committed to doing your will above all else. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Now, the book of James is one of my favorite books of the New Testament. The book of James is a practical book. It's one of the easiest books to understand. And it it is one of the, the most practical books of the New Testament. The book of James doesn't contain a lot of deep theological stuff that makes you read it and go, gosh, that's neat. Everything in the book of James is meant to challenge you in the way that you're currently living or thinking and saying to bring you around to the point to where you would make changes in your life based upon what is written there. James is an action book meant to produce action in our lives. And when we look at our text this morning, we see that James brings the same action-oriented idea to the terms and the idea of religion. And the word he chose for religion, it generally referred to the external acts of worship, the rituals concerning the worship. And what we see from James is that religion, the ceremonies, the acts of religion, of worship, they can be useless. Now, so think about that for a second. In in a way, there is it possible for us to take part in the actions of religion, to take part in the actions of, of worshiping God. And for the way that we're doing it to be useless, to be of no value, to be worthless altogether. So, I mean, think about that. James says that we can be actively involved in worshiping the God of the Bible and serving him. And yet all of that still be meaningless. That's pretty blunt. That's pretty straightforward. But that's the way James deals with things. James would later write that faith without works is dead. Now, he didn't. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. James doesn't say we're saved by our good works. James never contradicts the idea that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what James says is that it's not enough to claim to have faith in Jesus. If one truly has faith in Jesus, it will be evidenced in their life. And where there is a claim of faith but no actions of faith, that faith is dead. Where one has a a claim of being religious, but that religion is not based in their life and is not visible in their life. That religion is worthless. And what he wants us to understand is that it it is no good to say, I follow Jesus, if my life doesn't demonstrate that I follow Jesus. James understands that a genuine saving faith changes us from the inside out. And that's what he focuses on all throughout his book. And what he's telling us here is that we can be the most religious people in the world. But if that religion does not change the way that we act on a daily basis, our religion is worthless. 
James rejects the idea that religion is dead, dry list of rules and regulations that we follow to be right with God. Instead, he is telling us that true religion, it will change our lives. There is no way to genuinely worship the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ and remain the same. And in this is the test of true religion. A changed life is the test of true religion. A changed life is the test of true religion. I can be the most religious person I know. But if my religion does not change my life, then my religious activity is useless. Coming to church is only valuable when the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in me to change me so that I can be more like Jesus. Singing songs of worship to God has value only when it draws me closer to God and makes me more like Jesus. Religion is only useful as it changes my life. And James, being a master teacher, he doesn't leave it to us to decide what changes demonstrate a changed life. James knows our standard to lower the bar for ourselves. Right? We, we've heard the adage before, if you lower the bar low enough, eventually we can all jump over it. James knows that that's what we'll do. We'll say things like, well, I come to church. I'm changed. I wouldn't do that if it wasn't for Jesus. James says, no, that's not enough. That's not the kind of change I'm talking about. See, James doesn't really focus on external changes here. He focuses on things that start in the heart and then work their way out in our lives. And as we look at what James has to say, we see the, the evidences of a changed life. We see the tests of true religion that, that our lives have been changed. And there's three of them. Number one, test one. True religion tames my tongue. But James says, if anyone among you thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, his religion is useless. Now that's a, I mean, that's a hard statement. That if you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart and your religion is useless. You know, I grew up basically hearing people say over and over again that God didn't care how you talked. That your words were just another way to communicate and that God wasn't at all bothered by it. It didn't matter whether it was vulgar or anything else. None of that mattered. God didn't care about that. It was just a way to talk. God cared about other things, not the way that we speak. And yet James says here that there is a way that we can talk, a way that we can use our mouths that will demonstrate that our religion is useless. Now that's rough. How do we deal with that? How do we understand that? Well, I think we have to kind of get an idea of what the Bible has to say about the tongue. Because the Bible is not silent about speaking. The Bible is not silent about the way that we speak, the words that we use, and the way that we deal with other people. Now, we don't have time to look at everything the Bible says. I mean, if we were to look at all that the Bible said, we'd be here all day. But I just want to show you a few things that I think are important. Number one, a gossip goes around telling secrets, but those who are trustworthy can keep a confidence. So here's what we need to understand. True religion keeps me from being a gossip. Right? True religion will keep me from gossiping about others. And when I gossip, it's because my religion is useless. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Right? True religion will lead me to be truthful to the people I interact with. When I lie, and that is the habit of my life, it is because my religion is useless. 
Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, that your words may be an encouragement to those who hear them. Right? True religion causes me to use my words to build people up and not tear them down. But when I use my words in a foul and an abusive way, and I tear them down and beat them up and run them over with it, it's because my religion is useless. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. True religion will keep me from telling dirty jokes. True religion will keep me from being vulgar in the way that I speak. True religion will keep me from doing any of that stuff. But when I do those things, it's because my religion is useless. James also goes on to say, But no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. True religion keeps me from running other people down. True religion keeps me from leaving church today and going out and saying, did you see what they were wearing? My gosh, did they not know how stupid they looked? True religion keeps me from going out of here after singing praises to God and saying amen to His Word and then immediately begin to chew other people up and spit them out in criticism and condemnation. Now, that's just a, just a taste of what the Bible has to say about speech. The question is, though, sure, the Bible speaks to these things, but isn't it a little much to say that if I don't bridle my tongue... My religion is useless. How can James make such a bold statement? Well, he can make that statement because he's listened to what Jesus had to say. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see, here's, here's the deal. The mouth reflects the heart. That's why it's a big issue. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. See, the way that we speak is, is not just words. It's not just another way to talk. It's not just something. But the words that we say reflect the condition of our hearts. Profane words reflect a profane heart. Right? Vulgar words reflect a vulgar heart. Hateful words reflect an angry, bitter heart. What's coming out of our mouth, that tells us what's going on in here. Not so much the point that Jesus says, by our words we'll be justified or by our words we'll be condemned. Now what is he saying? What he's saying is that true religion changes our hearts in such a way that one could just look at the words that we say on a daily basis and that would be a testimony about whether or not we had received Jesus Christ as Lord. That, 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 if, if, that it changes everything about us. And so we could just play our words. And those words would testify salvation or no salvation. Our words demonstrate the condition of our heart. What do your words say about the condition of your heart? 
What do your words say about your religion? They say something. Test one. True religion tames my tongue. Test two. True religion generates generosity. He says the first of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble. Now, in this culture, and in really most of the world at this time, the two most helpless groups of people in the world were widows and orphans. Uh, Widows and orphans had no rights, virtually. They had no one who would speak up for them. They had no one who would help them. They, They could not many times get jobs. They could not in many times find any way to provide for themselves. And so if someone did not provide for them, then they had few options. They could become beggars. They could sell themselves into slavery. They could become prostitutes. Or they could starve to death. And what James says is, true religion, true religion leads us to get involved and to help those that desperately need help. Now, I was going to use the term compassion here because that's really kind of the idea. But I think compassion has been misused in our day and misunderstood. In our day, we've often got the idea that compassion is feeling bad. Gosh, I wish things were better. I hate that that's going on for you. Maybe things will improve. I feel for you. I'm compassionate. When in reality, compassionate is active. It helps. And so that's why I chose the term generosity. Because generosity implies action. Generosity implies doing something to help. And that's what James is saying here. James isn't saying, feel bad for the widows and the orphans. James is saying, be compassionately generous and help them in their time of need. This is what God wants us to do. Now, again, this is one of those things where we could go all through the Bible. We could start in the Old Testament and we could work our way up. And we would find that God always intended on His people to care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Always. I mean, you read the books of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. When they rebuke the people, many times one of the things they rebuke them for was not caring about others. But they rebuke them because they were, they were, in other words, fat and happy. But there were people starving outside their gates and they could care less. They rebuked them for it. And Jesus takes that idea and he builds on it. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, page 756. Now, Matthew 25, Jesus tells us a series of parables about what the kingdom of God is like. In the passage we're looking at, he talks about the final judgment. I'm going to read this whole story and then come back and just mention a few things. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and get a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you. And then he will answer them. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. Then they will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, this is the, obviously the end of all things, the final judgment of the world. And there are several things we need to see. First thing I want us to understand is who... Who does Jesus say we serve when we help those in need? Well, he said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. See, every time we see somebody in need, we help the poor, the widow, the orphan. When we help them out, we are serving Jesus. But by the same token, when we refuse to help them, we harden our heart and we turn our eyes away from it. We are ignoring Jesus. I mean, that's that's big, I think. I mean, that's a significant thing to think about. Now, another thing to notice. In this passage, obviously, some go to heaven and some go to hell. According to this passage, what is the determining factor? They were baptized. They went to church a certain number of times a week. No. No. That they saw those that were hungry and they fed them. Or they saw those that were hungry and they they didn't feed them. See, Jesus says that the sole determining factor here is our our response and our care for the poor. Those who care for those in need will go to heaven. Those who harden their hearts against them, will they go to hell. Now, again, let's be clear. Is Jesus saying that we're saved by our good deeds? No, obviously not. Jesus does not contradict Scripture. You always take Scripture in light of Scripture. But here's what Jesus is saying. Similar to what he said about the way that we speak. But being generous, being compassionately generous is such an integral part of what it means to follow Jesus. It is a change that is made in our hearts in such a way that one can merely look at our care for the poor. Look at our care for the helpless. And from that they can determine whether or not we are saved. In a way, what Jesus is saying is... If you don't care for the poor, it's because you've never been converted to begin with. If you don't help the helpless, it's really because you don't have my heart for the people. Because I care for the helpless. Now, go ahead and turn back to James. Because James says, basically, that religion that doesn't lead me to to visit the the orphan and the widows in their time of trouble is a, is a useless religion. Jesus says that if we don't care about the helpless, then we don't really know him at all. And again, how can we say that? How can they make such big statements about something like generosity and compassion? Because again, generous and compassion reveals our hearts. 
Look at what Jesus said. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You see, mostly, honestly, the reason we don't help is because we want to keep it for ourselves. Right? Because, I mean, before we start arguing with these thoughts in our mind, let's understand the Bible doesn't call on us to do ridiculous things. Right? Helping those in need is not sell all that you have, go live on the street, and give your money to the poor. That's not what the Bible's calling on us to do. I mean, if we were to look at 1 John chapter 3, John writes, if you see a brother or sister in need, and you have the ability to help, and you don't help them, how does the love of God abide in you? Now, so here are, the, here are the qualifications for it. One, you know about the need. I, I can't help anyone I don't know about. Secondly, you have the ability to help. Right? So nobody's saying, default on your debts to help. Nobody's saying, starve your children to feed others. Right? Don't, don't take this to ridiculous standards and say, well, I can't do it because of this. Because that's not what it's calling on us to do. And it's not saying, do everything, because none of us can do everything. But we can do what we can. We can help with the ways that we can. And as we help, as we are compassionately generous, it demonstrates where our treasure is. Right? Because every time we help someone in need, every time we give in that way, we are storing up treasures in heaven. Every time that we do that, we are building on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones that stores up treasure in heaven Every single time. And when I say, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to take away from myself and the things I might want to do. What I'm saying is, my treasure is right here. And the way I am compassionate and generous, the way I am not compassionate and generous, it reveals the condition of of my heart. It reveals where my treasure is. What does your generosity say about your religion? And then the final. True religion tames my tongue. True religion generates generosity. And then finally, true religion produces purity. James says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The world there refers basically to the world's values, the world's attitudes, the world's priorities, the world's morality. All things that are contrary to God's attitudes, to God's priorities, to God's morality. And a part of true religion is that we will keep ourselves from adopting the world's mindset in these things. We won't think like the world. We won't act like the world. We won't prioritize ourselves like the world. Now, let's again understand what this means. 
does this mean we need to move into our own little Christian communes and, and only watch GodTube instead of YouTube and have God pods instead of iPods? No. No, absolutely not. Right? We, are, we have a mission to make disciples of all nations. We cannot do that in our cloistered communion, uh, communes where we have no interaction with the world. We must interact with the world. But we must interact with the world in such a way that we do not adopt their attitudes. We do not adopt their values. We do not adopt their morality. We do not adopt their priorities. That all of these things are conformed to God. And they follow Him and His standards as revealed in Scripture. We could go, again, all throughout the Bible. And God always intended that His people would be different from the world around them. We read Leviticus, this book of laws, and these just crazy things they had to do and all the things they weren't allowed to do and all the things they were supposed to do. And over and over again, God says, do this because I'm your God and you're not to be like the people around you. You're not to be like the pagans around you. That was God's thing. He wanted them to be different. Their lives, their attitudes, their actions, their priorities, they were to demonstrate that they were different, that their God was different, that their God was bigger and better and real. Then we come to the New Testament. And Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be different. Peter says, do not be like you were before. Right Before you were a disobedient and you lived in one way, but now you know Jesus. Live another way. Be holy. Because He is holy. Right, listen, sin matters. Sin is an issue. Sin is not okay. But it is not okay for us to excuse our sin and say, well, I'm walking close to Jesus, but bless God, I'm, I'm rebellious in this area. It doesn't work. True religion produces purity in our lives, not perfection. Not perfection. We're not talking about that. But listen, if you live in sin and you're okay with your sin, there's an issue. There is a significant heart problem in your life. Things are not right between you and your God. How can sin be such a big deal that it would make our religion useless? Because sin, like generosity and like our words, reveals the condition of our hearts. Look at what Jesus said. What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the hearts of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil lying, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, out of the heart, and defile a man. Right now, we're not going to take a lot of time to go over all those sins because we know what those things are. Right? Things I do want to point out. Notice covetousness right up there which is idolatry in other places. Lewdness. Now, lewdness is sensuality. It's not so much sexual immorality like fornication or adultery, but instead it is just reading about it and being immersed in a sensual, sexualized culture and acting as though that were okay. Pride. Mercy, that's rough right there, isn't it? Blasphemy. It doesn't speak of blasphemy against God. It speaks of blasphemy against people. I mean, these are, this is the world we live in. I mean, this, this is our world. And these things, they come from within and they defile us. And they're problems not because of the actions, but because of what they reveal. 
they reveal our hearts. When any when sin is a part of my life, it is because there is sin in my heart, and my heart is not right with God. True religion produces purity. Right at the at the very beginning, basics, it produces a desire for purity. Right? True religion will not see these things in my life and think that's okay. True religion will see these things in our life and say, you know what? I'm wrong. My life is wrong. My heart is wrong. I need God to fix it. True religion desires those things to be gone out of their life. So let me ask you, what does, what does your life say about your religion? Titus, and this wasn't a verse I'd planned to use, it just came to my mind. Titus makes a statement. It's pretty amazing. Let me read you what he says if I can find it. says, to the pure all things are pure. To those who are undefiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now listen to this. They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. Being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Now you see what, what, what Paul wrote to Titus? He said, you can say, I'm a follower of Christ. And you can say, I love Jesus. But then you can turn around and live in such a way that demonstrates your words are false. You can turn around and live in such a way that demonstrates your words are a lie. That you demonstrate you do not know Him. It's in true religion. It changes us. It makes us different in our our speech. It makes us different in our treasure. It makes us different in the way that we live day in and day out. And religion that does not do that, James says, is useless. It's faith without works and it's dead. Listen, these are things we should take seriously. Because James doesn't say religion that doesn't transform your language or your life is not best. He said it's useless. James doesn't say faith without works is a problem. James says faith without works is dead. These are both words that speak to no spiritual life. These are words that speak to no salvation. This is not saying... You live in this way and you be contrary to Scripture, but in the end, God's going to say, that's okay. Faith without works is dead. Religion that doesn't change us is useless. If this describes our religion and our religious experience, we should be concerned. So coming in here, singing, studying is good. But if we don't go out there and live differently because of what's in here, then what happened in here was useless to us. 
what happens in here only has value when we live differently out there because of it. The test of true religion is not the knowledge I have, the baptisms I've been involved in, the times I've attended church. The test of true religion is a changed life. What does your life say about your religion? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.